Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again everybody and welcome to another episode of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, literally counting the days, you guys, until the 2019 50th annual World Series of Poker. I can hardly wait. And no, it's not just because I had such a good year last year. I actually did some math. I went back through all my records, and this will be my 12th visit to Vegas in the summertime and I have a record of nine wins and two losses Um, overall that's with all the games I play the tournaments the cash games the satellites one year in particular I played like 75 satellites Um, those single table satellites are always a good time I'm excited to get back Um, I'm a little bit nervous about how I might feel Returning to the scene of the crime, not the hotel, of course. I'm not going back to Bally's ever, uh, but just being back in Vegas when the last time I was there a few months ago, as all of you by now know, uh, I was a burglary victim and I'm just nervous that when I get there, I might just have some bad memories about all the horrible feelings. But seriously, what am I supposed to do? Never go to Vegas again? Yeah, right. That's not going to happen. Uh, it's still my home away from home and a place that I love so much. I just don't think I'll ever go to Bally's again. <laughs> Pretty safe bet on that. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Let's talk about the World Series of Poker. I'm looking at the schedule. There's something for everyone. And uh, in preparation for this year's uh, grind... And I do mean grind. I'm planning on playing something like 35 tournaments this summer, uh, including at least 16 bracelet events. In addition to the other work I'll be doing, which includes this podcast, I'm gearing up by reviewing some hands that I played in various events last summer. I never throw anything away. That's one of my... um, I don't know, I guess you could say character flaws, but sometimes it comes in handy. Uh, As I mentioned when I first reported about my burglary that took place at Bally's Las Vegas, which is why you should never stay there. They don't have security at the elevators uh, and they don't have cameras in the hallways, but that's not my point that I'm trying to make right now. It's just something I want to mention as often as possible. But when I first told you guys about that, I mentioned that they stole an old cell phone of mine. And uh, luckily for me, I save all my old cell phones. So, you know, obviously one of them got stolen. But the one I'm using now is the same one I had this time last year. And that cell phone has every hand that was at all interesting that I played in every tournament all year, which, of course, includes the summer. And I, you know, what I do is during tournament breaks, I like to stretch out, take a walk outside, get some sun if available, and record hands that I played to discuss later with my friends and coach and whatever. So uh, I've been going through some of those hands, and I realize it's an exciting realization, but I'm better at poker now than I was in May of 2018. I was making some mistakes, especially towards the beginning of the summer that I will not be making this year. Uh, And I'm very excited to see how my results might improve, particularly if my opponents have not made similar improvements year to year. Another thing I've been doing is studying, studying, studying on Tournament Poker Edge. I'm kind of obsessed with this video series that Andrew Brokus put out a few months ago. Uh, as you know, he's a friend of mine and we've had him on the show a number of times. Andrew is an amazing player and he's also an amazing teacher. Now, those two things don't always go together, 
but Andrew is really good at taking a complicated topic and breaking it down. So the series that I'm talking about is uh, so it's called it's titled something like hand range analysis using PyoSolver. And it is just brilliant. It's a six part series. So it's almost six hours of Andrew just edifying us about hand ranges on different board textures and the correct strategies uh, to employ whether you are the preflop raiser or the big blind defender. Obviously, you could extrapolate the information uh, to uh, you know work just as well if you were in other positions or if there were even more players in the hand. But it just gives you a really good framework and a great way to kind of learn how these solvers come up with their answers and approach optimizing strategy uh, from a game theoretical standpoint. Uh, knowing all that is extremely useful so that when we decide to break apart from the correct, quote-unquote, correct strategy because we want to exploit an opponent's mistake, we are doing so with the knowledge of what we are deviating from. And we're not just uh, throwing darts with a blindfold. And we're trying to figure out if we are deviating, why are we deviating? And what would the computer say to do? And then if I choose to do something else, I know what I'm doing differently and why. So uh, if you are a TPE member, I highly recommend this series. Listen to Andrew help you understand what PO Solver is telling you um, as a mostly live player and mostly medium stakes. Uh, I generally don't need to know the exact GTO numbers for every single decision I make like you online robots do. But I still find it extremely useful in figuring out plays and just checking myself to see uh, exactly how exploitable I am. And then on those rare occasions that I'm up against a robot in a live setting, I know how to get back to basics and play a style that is much closer to what the computers have determined the correct theoretical strategy to be. And if you have not yet become a member of Tournament Poker Edge, I really don't know what to tell you except that it's super cheap. Uh, if you buy a year's worth, you get it for $25 a month. Uh, most of you spend way more than that just on streaming services <laughs> to watch Game of Thrones and whatever else you're into. So if you're serious about poker and you want a low-cost but highly effective solution to improving your poker game, tournamentpokeredge.com, that's where you want to be. So get on there ASAP and get yourself ready for the summer, just like I've been doing. Another thing I want to recommend uh, that I've been doing lately is reading Exploitative Play in Live Poker by Alex Fitzgerald. Now, Alex, the assassinato himself, uh, is a friend of mine. He's also been a guest on this podcast many times. He is a TPE coach who's brilliant and uh, definitely not too obsessed with trying to find the perfect equilibrium solution to every problem. His approach is much more about digging into the mistakes that your opponents are making or are most likely to make and figuring out ways to maximize expectation against those mistakes. Uh, it's a great read. The man is brilliant, and he's clearly done a lot of homework in researching for his book. So uh, I can highly recommend that. And uh, Alex does not give me a kickback or anything if you guys buy the book. It's just I want to help you. And I really think that all of us can learn from the great Alex Fitzgerald. So get that book and thank me later. Now, uh, I want to let you guys know that we are having the annual TPE meetup in Vegas this year, it's going to be held on May 31st at P.T.'s Pub on the corner 
of Flamingo and Decatur. Uh, the official event page on Facebook lists 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. My official guess is that it will not end at 11 p.m. Uh, these parties are epic. I'm going to do everything I can to be there. I originally wasn't planning to get to Vegas until about June 1st. Um, but now with the news that May 31st is the night that seems to work best for uh, the most TPE people, that might just have to change my entire travel schedule <laughs> right there. Uh, I don't want to miss the party. It should be a great time. Uh, you're all invited, and we hope that you can join us. I'm saying us optimistically. I hope to be there, but I might not. There will be a party with or without me May 31st at PT's Pub on the corner of Flamingo and Decatur. All right, let's get into it. Um, I want to continue our coverage of last year's main event, Final Table. I've been getting some very positive feedback on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. People like going over this tournament. Um, obviously, there's nothing like the main event. And all of us, whether we'll admit it or not, fantasize, dream, uh, daydream, whatever, about playing at this particular final table. Uh, last year's was probably the softest I've seen since before Chris Moneymaker won. Um, and that's not a knock on any of the players who made it that far. And there's certainly no bitterness on my part for having made the final three tables and not gotten there. It's more that in previous years, in recent memory, there have been some really stacked final tables with some extremely established pros, usually several players with millions and millions in caches. And this year just featured a lot less experienced competition. That said, it was a very entertaining final table to watch. Um, if you haven't been listening to our recent episodes, I encourage you to go back. I think I started reviewing this tournament uh, from day one back in September because I personally recorded a lot of hands that I played, as I always do with every tournament I play, uh, but I did not expect to make it as far as I did, so I ended up having quite a, a few hands to uh, discuss before we even got to the final table. So I encourage you to go back all the way back to September of 2018, which I believe is about the time that we started covering uh, in graphic detail hands from this tournament. I love when you guys interact with me on Twitter. I love when you disagree. I love when you ask questions. Um, actually, this week, someone even suggested that I talk about one of the hands. I'm going to talk about two hands on this episode. And one of them, uh, one of our listeners wanted to make sure that I had plans to discuss it because it, it really is interesting. So, uh, yeah, let's start with that hand. So this is the actually the very last hand of the 500,000, 1 million level. Uh, there are four players left. We recently lost the great Joe Cata, who went out in fifth place. And at this stage of the tournament... We still have our overwhelming chip leader, Michael Dyer, with 193 million chips. Uh, second place right now belongs to Tony Miles with only 115 million. So Dyer has maintained a, a great deal of distance between himself and all of the uh, opponents that he's faced for the last several days, which includes this final table. There are two other players still around, John Sin and Nick Mannion, with 36 million and 49 million, respectively. So at this point, it does appear to be Michael Dyer's tournament to lose. So let's get to the hand. It's four handed, 500K, 1 million, with a 150,000 ante. So the starting pot is 2.1 million. This is, as I mentioned, the last hand of this level before the blinds go up. John Sin, under the gun with uh, Jack-9 offsuit, raises to $2.1 which is barely over a min-raise and has been the standard 
opening bet at this table for quite some time. Uh, Tony Miles with pocket trays calls on the button. Nick Mannion folds queen of hearts, eight of clubs. And Michael Dyer calls for just over one million more with the four of clubs, tray of clubs. So let's talk about this pre-flop action. I have no problem with sin opening jack nine four handed. Uh, it's totally fine. Pretty standard there, even with his uh, pretty short stack that he's got going on. His M is right around 17. And of course he has 36 big blinds. Um, yeah. So he needs to be getting after it, trying to fight his way back into contention for the bracelet. Uh, so I have no problem there. I think the first question is what should Tony miles do? He's got 115 big blinds. His M is right around 55. Um, he has the chip leader in the big blind. I think there's a very strong case to be made for three betting with the trays here. I think it should take it down a lot um, for all the times that Sin is just making a move to try to pick up some blinds and antes. Um, we are four-handed. You don't need to have pocket aces to three bet four-handed, obviously. I think that in Miles's shoes, especially given his relatively tight table image, he's been careful uh, to this point at this final table. It seems like he's been mostly waiting around for other players to bust. And he's been the only player at the table that's taking an unnecessary amount of time to fold. Uh, visit my website, foldfaster.com. That doesn't really exist. Anyway, uh, I think he should exploit his table image with a three bet that said obviously calling and trying to flop a set is fine you have to know though that when you call there's almost no chance that Dyer's ever going to fold uh so you will see this flop three-handed which virtually requires you to flop a set in order to continue with the hand uh so there's just, you know, that's something to think about. It's not like he has any chance of really playing a heads up pot. And then Mannion folds. And of course, when Dyer completes, we're going to see the flop three handed. So the flop comes a magical king of spades, four of hearts and tray of spades. Now on this flop, if I'm Michael Dyer and everyone has been getting run over by me for the last three days, I think flopping two pair would feel like heaven. Um, he's not worried that anyone has a set because the only player who can really have a set in this situation is John Sin, who could have pocket kings it seems incredibly unlikely that Tony Miles could have pocket kings because he didn't three bet pre-flop. Of course, sometimes players slow play big hands, yada, yada. You can't really worry about that too much because, well, let's just say you can't worry about everything. It's tournament poker. Um, it's also incredibly unlikely that anyone has a set of fours or trays because I have one of each in my hand. So this is a fantastic flop for Michael Dyer in the big blind. Or so he thinks. Dyer checks and John Sin, the pre-flop raiser, also checks. I like this decision by Sin, not only because I can see what his opponents actually held, but because his stack is too short to make any more mistakes. What I mean by that is, if Sin gets involved in trying to barrel everybody off of whatever they, they have in this situation, he's likely to take himself from an M of 17 or 18, where it is now, all the way down to an M of 14 or 15. 
and then the blinds are going to go up and his M is going to be way down in the 12 or 13 area, which is a very tough area to play. It's hard to play that stack size, especially with ICM considerations and everything else. It just handcuffs a lot of your possible plays. So I really like Sin's decision not to continuation bet into two opponents on this flop for that and many other reasons. Another reason is uh, Dyer in particular hasn't really shown uh, a willingness to fold any piece of any flop. Also, there are draws available. King of spades, four of hearts, tray of spades. There are all the flush draws, all the wheel draws, all the open-ended straight draws with six, five, five deuce. Um, And of course, no one's going to fold a king. It's also going to be very difficult to get anyone to fold a pair between kings and fours for one bet. So in order to accomplish that goal, Sin would need to be willing to go more than one barrel. And given his stack size, I just think he can find a better opportunity. So good move, not C-betting there, John Sin. Obviously, Tony Miles wants to bet his set. The pot contains 7.4 million in chips and Miles puts in 4.3, a healthy 4.3 into 7.4. And Dyer goes 10 million more to 14.3. And of course, Sin lays it down, patting himself on the back internally for not having C-bet this flop. So now the action is on Tony Miles, and he's got to make a decision. Should I? Obviously, I'm not going to fold a set. Um, if probably the only hand that I should be worried about is pocket fours, and if I end up going out in fourth place because I got into a set over set situation with the only guy at the table that had me covered, um, that's a great story for the rest of my life to tell everyone how I almost won the World Series of Poker main event. Um, so yeah, I don't think Miles has any intention of folding. It's just a question of calling or raising. I agree with Antonio Esfandiari, who made the comment on television that Miles basically has to flat here because any further aggression on the part of Tony Miles would reveal his hand strength to his opponent, which you really don't want to do when you've got the most aggressive player backed into a corner where he needs to decide whether he's going to keep trying to steal yet another pot away from you and you finally have the goods against him, you need to play in such a way as to try to extract as many chips as you can without actually revealing to that player that you have him this time. And I think that Tony Miles figured that out and called the 10 million and we see a turn it comes the five of clubs so now our board is king four tray five with two spades so okay it's a pretty blank card i mean it's not tony miles's favorite card but it is a card that he welcomes uh i think if anything Tony Miles was concerned about the possibility that Dyer check raised the flop with a flush draw, which is what most of us would do at least some of the time in Dyer's shoes. And Dyer knows that. So his bet with bottom two pair on the flop, his raise rather with bottom two pair on the flop is balanced by those times when he has a set of fours, a a set of trays. And all of his flush draws and possibly even 6-5, ace-five, ace-deuce, all of those hands would probably at least have some raises in a balanced strategy. So raising for value with Fortray is totally fine on Dyer's part. And then by calling, Miles can continue representing a flush draw himself or possibly a king. But if he has a king... What king does he have? He has a king that flatted from the button pre-flop. So that could be maybe king jack, king 10. 
I think any better king than that should probably be three betting when the short stack opens under the gun. And I think that worse kings than that should usually fold. So it's unlikely, therefore, that Tony Miles has a king in his hand. Of course, it's possible. But in Dyer's shoes, I think that I would deduce that most of Miles's range consists of flush draws. That's kind of the only thing that makes sense. Of course, he could have a set, but he probably doesn't have a set of kings or he would have three-bet pre-flop. And it's very, very hard for him to have a, a set of fours or trays because I have one of each in my hand. So I'm blocking those hands. And, you know, a lot of players that use Pio Solver and other um, tools to try to figure out a GTO strategy, they learn how important card removal is in figuring out ranges and strategies and having a solid theoretical approach to tournament poker. Now, obviously, since we can see the cards, we know that Dyer is in a world of trouble here. But I think in real life, even at the final table of the main event, you have to really discount the possibility that someone has bottom set when you have bottom two. Obviously, as we know, all things are, in fact, possible, including the fact that sometimes the other guy has the last two trays. But I think when you're playing the game, you can't be assuming the worst at all times. What makes sense for Michael Dyer is that Tony Miles probably has something like ace, eight of spades. I don't know. And a flush draw of some kind, maybe queen, jack of spades, those kinds of hands that didn't want to three bet pre-flop. Now, I mentioned before this turn is not a complete blank, like the ace deuce got there and the seven six or six deuce got there. Um, Those hands seem less likely, but possible, particularly if they are spades. So both players have to be at least a little bit concerned that the turn card beat them. However, Dyer continues now that he seized the lead on the flop with his check raise. He now continues and into a pot of 36.1 million. He bets 21.4 million. And Miles does a pretty good acting job. Although I'm not even sure if it was 100% of an acting job because I believe he does have a bit of a dilemma as far as should I raise or should I call. And I think you can make a case for either. Miles chooses to call in this spot, and I think that's totally fine. Um, It allows me to continue representing the flush draw when I, in fact, have a set. And what Miles is hoping for is that Michael Dyer has a king. Uh, In his wildest dreams, he can't imagine that Dyer actually has two pair or he might actually make an aggressive action here. Instead, he, he just calls and we see a river. And that river is the king of clubs. Now, Dyer, he's counterfeited now. Um, His bottom two has now become kings and fours with a five kicker. (laughs) Um, So he checks. And Tony Miles with a full house, trays full of kings, only has about a pot-sized bet left in his stack. There's about $79 million in the pot, and that's right around what Miles has. Um, I think he should put it in, hoping that Dyer has a king. Dyer should have some kings in his range. Instead, Miles bets only $27 million into the $79 million pot, leaving himself something like $53 million behind. Uh, 
and Dyer calls rather quickly. Basically, Snap calls it. So let's examine this river. I think this river decision by both players is most interesting. Uh, Miles should know that if Michael Dyer has a straight or a king, he's going to get action with a shove. Uh, There's no reason to bet small in this situation. Miles either has, when Miles bets, he either has a made hand or a bluff. Okay, he's not betting like a four. So what value hands is he betting? I think in Miles' shoes, he should bet with a king, obviously, but we already said he doesn't have that many kings. Obviously, he wants to bet all of his full houses. And he should also bet his busted spade draws some of the time, especially when he doesn't have an ace. Now, if Tony Miles bets a busted flush draw, the only better hand that is really going to fold would be something like another busted flush draw. So you might be able to get, you know, maybe if you're if you're betting the jack high flush draw, you might get the ace high flush draw to fold if you if you shove on the river when you didn't get there. Um you may also get certain other hands to fold, but the way Dyer has played this pot with check raising on the flop and then betting big on the turn, I don't feel like he's got a medium strength value hand very often. In other words, I don't see Dyer taking this particular line with a hand like pocket sevens or sixes or other like pocket pairs that didn't um, three bet pre-flop. It just seems like so much of each player's range in this pot should be flush draws the way the hand has been played by both players. So Dyer probably thinks that Miles has a flush draw and Miles probably thinks that Dyer has a flush draw and they often will. They both have blockers to each other's hands. So let's keep that in mind as we examine this river. Miles doesn't really know what the heck Michael Dyer has been check raising and then betting and then checking the river with. Uh, it's very hard for Miles to put Dyer on a hand. Therefore, he should just be optimistic. I mean, Dyer's most likely holdings are flush draws that won't give much action, no matter how much or how little Miles bets. And probably every earthly combination of trip kings available. So... You want to try to get action from the from the trip king's hands, and that's why you need to go all in. So I'm not crazy about Miles's bet. I think he should have shoved for 80 million instead of betting just 27 million. Um, it worked out for him though, as we know Dyer only had, uh, you know, a, a counterfeited middle pair kind of thing, and he really does have to call when Miles bets 27 million into. 79 million in my opinion because as I mentioned a moment ago I think that so much of Miles's range the way this hand has been played is flush draws I mean look at Miles play he calls pre-flop with something bets when check two on the button on the flop and then just calls a check raise and then just calls again on the turn that's how we play our draws guys um Now, all the draws missed, most of the draws missed, and Dyer has plenty of hand for a bluff catcher, especially when it's such a small bet, he's getting almost four to one on a call. Remember, Miles only bets 27 million into 79 million, and I don't think that Dyer can even consider folding versus most opponents, given those kinds of odds. He only needs to be good about 20 8% of the time for this bet size. And of course, Miles will have a draw that missed and then decided to fire. Uh, You know, you can't win with jack high of spades, so you might as well put in 
a bluff. So, you know, Dyer looks pretty bad in this hand because he called so quickly and it, it looks like he just had a blow up. But if you really analyze the hand, it's unlikely that Miles has a set because I have a four and a tray in my hand. And it's unlikely that Miles would bet worse than a full house on the river. So it's either an unlikely full house or a much more likely missed draw. And the way the hand has been played, I think it's perfectly reasonable that Dyer would assume Miles had a draw. A draw that missed and now has to turn itself into a bluff. So Dyer calls and loses the chip lead with this pot. Now let me state the case for Dyer finding the fold here on the river. Um, Miles has not gotten out of line at all. Not once at this final table. He's been cautious. He's been tight. He's been very careful. He seems to be worried about losing and mostly concerned with letting other people bust out before he does so that he can climb the ladder. And that's been his playing style up until now. Therefore, he's probably not bluffing. But given the price, I think Dyer needs to go ahead and see if his four is any good. Definitely a super interesting hand, though, and one that kind of reminds me of the conversation we had on the Matt Stout episode where Matt kind of discounted the possibility that he was up against a certain hand that he feared because he had blockers. <laughs> it just goes to show that the blocker theory, as Matt Stout called it, uh, is an imperfect one at best. All right, so then we take a little break and the blinds go up. Uh, I'm not going to do the very first hand after the blinds went up, but there was an interesting hand shortly after that break when the blinds are now 600,000, 1.2 million, and a 200,000 ante, which means that the pot contains 2.6 million before the cards are even dealt. Uh, Dyer under the gun with Jack Deuce folds, and John Sin, who is our short stack, with 22 million big blinds. Guys, the eventual winner of the tournament was the short stack by a lot with four players left. Just remember that the next time you're at a final table. Never give up. It is unlikely and yet very possible that things can very quickly turn around and you can go from the bottom to the top in any tournament that you play, including the main event. So, uh, Sin is the short stack with 22 million and he's on the button. So after Dyer folds, Sin looks down at the Jack of clubs and 10 of clubs. So his M in this hand is just over eight and he's got about 18 big blinds. Yeah. 18 big blinds. And that's just too big a stack to shove, even on the button, even with a pretty suited Broadway hand like Jack-10. It's just, it, you can't be opening this hand in this spot, in this tournament, for a shove. It's just too big of a stack. So he needs to play a pot, even though every decision he makes in that pot will put him that much closer to pot commitment. Uh, if he wants to play, and I think he should, he needs to go with a standard raise, which he does. Min raise, in fact, to 2.4 million. Miles folds a junk hand, queen tray. And Mannion, Nick Mannion in the big blind with the queen of hearts and jack of hearts calls. Now, let's talk about stacks a little bit. At this point in the tournament, Tony Miles is your chip leader with about 188 million. Uh, Michael Dyer is now down to 135 million. Sin, as we mentioned, has only 22 million, and Nick Mannion has 41 million chips. So not only was Sin the short stack with four players left, the next shortest stack was almost twice as big. So it's incredible what he did, and it involved a lot of luck in addition to his obvious skill. Uh, so Mannion has the Queen Jack of Hearts. Queen of Hearts, Jack of Hearts, and he calls 1.2 million more. You can make a case for three bets shoving over Sin's button open if you want. I'm totally fine with this call. Uh, might as well see a flop and, and see what comes. The pot is 6.2 million. Sin has only 19 million behind. 
So his SPR is around three, and that's the effective stack for this flop, which is nine of clubs, six of clubs, and deuce of spades. So Sin has two overcards and a flush draw, while Mannion from the big blind has queen jack of hearts, no pair, no draw on this board, unless you count the extremely unlikely uh, backdoor straight draw. Um. Mannion, with basically nothing, bets $3 million into the $6.2 million pot. And I'm okay with this play, guys. I don't really think it's a bad play. I'm not sure that I would do it myself. But the case for doing it is that it's unlikely Sin has anything. And if he has nothing, he very, very clearly has to fold. He can't afford to start screwing around with a bluff here too much. And Mannion's been probably the tightest player at the table, um, at least since we got down to about seven or eight players, Mannion has been very ABC, very much straightforward, value betting when he has it, checking and folding when he doesn't. Uh, Nick Mannion is not a bluffer and doesn't look like a bluffer at this table, which to me makes this a good play because, you know, your opponent can't continue with without having hit a piece of the flop and it's a hard flop to hit a piece of and you look like the tight player who doesn't bluff so it's fine to take one stab on the flop the sin with the flush draw and two over cards makes a play i really can't agree with he decides to call i think that pretty much all of us would shove um when you see a flop with, uh, you know, M of eight with 18 big blinds. And that flop is a flush draw with two over cards. I think shoving is standard and standard for a reason because, uh, sin is opening himself up by calling, He's opening himself up to having to fold on the turn, which is kind of a disaster when I just put in another $3 million on the flop. If I end up having to fold a hand with you know, plenty of equity on the turn, if Mannion, if the turn doesn't come a club and Mannion fires all in, Sin will have to fold his flush draw and two overcards because he'll be priced out. So I don't agree with calling on this flop. And honestly, I can't understand... Uh, why Sin made this play. My best theory right now is that it's day nine of a very, very long poker tournament at the end of a very, very long summer. And we need to give everyone a little bit of slack once in a while. You're going to make a mistake. Uh, That said, it's a really bad call, in my opinion. Uh, But he does call, and now the pot is $12.2 And the turn... Is the deuce of hearts. So now our board is nine, six, deuce, deuce with two clubs. Uh, okay, so we didn't get there. And now Sin is thinking, please don't bet, please don't bet, please don't bet. And Mannion fires 5.5 million into the 12.2 million pot. I got to give Mannion uh, a half credit for this play. Um, as I mentioned before, he's been one of the tightest players at the table. He has not been bluffing very much at all uh, for the last two days. Now, he finally picks a spot, and he even gets called on the flop, but that doesn't deter him from betting again. All he really needs to do is put John Sin's stack at risk. Imagine how much harder it is for Sin to call a full uh, 17, 16.5 million bet on this on this turn card when there's 12 million in the pot sin would be priced out especially when the possibility exists that his overcards aren't even good what if Mannion has uh a deuce somehow in his hand or pocket aces somehow i mean everything is possible although unlikely i think that if you want to get it done you need to go ahead and fire instead he Almost priced him in by betting 5.5 into 12.2. Sin, who needs about 
4.1 to 1 mathematically for this call to be correct, and that assumes that Mannion will always fold when Sin fires the river <laughs> when he gets there. Uh, he he all, almost gives him that exact price with this small bet. He's giving him about 3.5 to 1. So obviously with the implied odds, Sin doesn't like it, but he can afford to call. I think in Sin's shoes, playing this hand passively has really got him into a world of trouble. No option looks attractive. Your opponent has now asked you to put in another 5.5 of your remaining 16.6 chips. So essentially, you will have put in half of your stack by the time you see the the river card, which is never good when you're just on a jack-high flush draw. So that's bad. And also, Mannion has not been getting out of line. For all I know, I could be drawing dead. Possibly Mannion has pocket sixes, pocket nines, and now filled up here on the turn. It's dicey. It's ugly. And it can all be avoided by just shoving on the flop. Anyway, Sin, who doesn't really have a good option here, uh, folding is bad because I'm getting kind of the right price to call, assuming my opponent doesn't have me drawing dead. And calling is bad because, as I mentioned, it just it's too big a chunk of my stack. It's very hard to play any pot where you start with an M of 8. And this is why, because every little decision you make is putting too great of a percentage of your chips into the middle of the pot. Uh, Sin has no good options, but he picks one and he calls. And now the pot is 25.2 million and Sin... Uh, only has 11.1 million behind at this point. Uh, the river is the ace of clubs. And poor, poor Mannion. I mean, the guy waited all day and all day yesterday. Stayed in line. Was a good boy. Checked and folded when he missed. Bet and raised when he had it. And never once got out of line. The one time he gets out of line. And then he tries to represent that ace on the end. He's run into a flush. So obviously Sin takes no time to snap call and gets the full double off of his less experienced opponent. Uh, You know, Mannion, it's kind of too little too late to pick this time. You know, on the flop, Sin said he had something. On the turn, he confirmed that he had something. And so I really don't know what Mannion was trying to represent except maybe the flush that sin obviously had so that's why that one didn't work out uh it's kind of an interesting spot though because i think sin took let's just say an unorthodox line on this hand and i really was kind of bewildered watching it like what is he doing he's the short stack and he's just calling hoping to hit his card and then he hit his card and then a couple days later he was wearing the championship bracelet. (laughs) So what do I know? Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. You guys Um, keep up with the tweets at Clayton comic. Definitely sign up for tournament poker edge.com. Get yourself in shape for the upcoming world series of poker. Come out to PTs on Flamingo and Decatur at 7 PM on May 31st and come say hi to me, to killing bird and to all the other TPE personalities that will be uh, celebrating the start of another World Series of Poker together. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.
Lucy Henry.